Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where I speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Phil King, the founder of Regal Funds Management, a fund manager that has had a spectacular year and fantastic performance. For instance, the Small Companies Fund, one of the many strategies they run and a fund that is familiar with many of my clients, had a fantastic year being up 49% for the last year and a compound annual growth rate of 34% per annum since inception back in 2015. In the episode, I talked to Phil about his reflection on the last 15 years since he started Regal and what the secret source is and the methodology that they employ to consistently produce such great returns when many other active managers have struggled. We talk about some of the investments he has in technology companies such as Zip and Afterpay. We also touch on the rise of passive investing in ETFs and some of the opportunities that's presenting. And we also talk about the current environment and what the economic conditions are and investment conditions for deploying capital at the moment. Please remember that this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be a recommendation of any specific investment. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, as well as seeking advice prior to purchasing any financial products. Please remember to like the podcast or share it with friends or provide feedback. Don't be afraid to send me an email. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I really appreciate that feedback. Keep it coming. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. I certainly did. Fantastic opportunity to really speak to one of the industry leaders in the Australian investment world. I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Phil King. Phil King, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Now, Phil, first I have to do is apologise in that we actually sat down about two weeks ago and uh, unfortunately we had a technical glitch in that uh, the primary recording device uh, didn't work and the backup recording device, which was my phone with a microphone on it, uh, wasn't on uh, flight mode so that when you listen to that backup back, it sounded like someone was being electrocuted every five minutes. So I apologise. I know you're very, very busy, but thank you very much for agreeing to sit down and re-record it with me. My pleasure, David. Perhaps we could kick off, if you could just give yourself or our listeners a bit of a summary as to who you are and um, the background to Regal, please. I set up Regal 15 years ago with my brother. Um, I've always enjoyed investing in the stock market. I bought my first shares when I was 14 um, and I've, it's certainly what I enjoy doing. And so I had a bit of experience working as a chartered accountant then I worked on the sell side for five years with Macquarie, and I spent seven years in London working on the buy side. And then in 2005, I came back to Sydney and set up Regal with my brother, and we weren't sure how we were going to go initially, um, and so we just invested our own money, um, and then we had a few people knocking on our door and asking us to invest their money as well, and that's really how Regal was born. Congratulations. I think it's 15 years. I was looking at some material today and saw the 15 on it, so well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and, and what's Andrew doing these days? My brother's bought a farm at Coola and he's uh, doing it a bit tough up there without much rain. But uh, he's, he's certainly uh, doing something very, very different to what he was doing at Regal. Now, fast forward the clock 15 years, and if I'm right, you're managing 11 strategies? 
Yeah. Roughly, we, and about how much money ballpark? We manage around $2.4 billion. Uh, I don't think it's quite 11 different strategies. Some of our strategies have funds based in Australia, and then for our offshore investors, we have funds based in the Caymans. But we do have a range of different strategies. Some of those strategies differ just in the risk management. Um, so we offer a variable beta fund, we offer a zero beta fund, and we offer a beta one fund. And then we have specialised strategies focused on both small companies and emerging companies. And then we recently introduced a volatility strategy earlier this year. And the performance of all of those funds has been very, very good. Obviously, this year has been particularly good, which makes it exciting to sit down with someone like yourself. So congratulations on that. Uh, but when I sort of ran through uh, the sort of returns you're looking at from something like the long short Australian fund is up 13.8% compound annual growth. The Atlantic fund is up something like 34% compound annual growth since inception back in 2004. So they're stunning numbers in anyone's language. So well done in 15 years. It's a great, uh, great milestone. Thanks, David. We tend to seed all our strategies with our own money, and so we're obviously very, very focused that uh, we get good returns for our investors. Can you talk a little bit about what is the regal proven investment process that I read on your website? We follow what we call a four-step stock selection process, and so like many investors, valuation is very, very important to us and, and our first and most important part of our process. And we use different valuation metrics, we look at stocks in different ways and we're always trying to work out what we call the true intrinsic value of a company. And one of the benefits of Regal is that we have, I think, one of the strongest research teams in Australia. You know, we have two medical doctors, for example, doing our healthcare research. We have a, a veteran of Glencore doing our mining research. And so I think we've got some very, very good uh, research specialists. But one thing I've learned with um, after close to 40 years experience of investing is that you've got to get the timing right as well. So we have another three steps in our process after valuation and that's macro, catalyst and edge. We want to invest with our eyes open. We're not trying to choose, choose stocks from the top down. We want to be aware of what risks are in the world. You know, we want to know, you know what, what's happening with the trade war, etc. So we choose stocks from the bottom up but with our eyes open. And ideally we have tailwinds for our long positions and headwinds for our shorts. The third part of our process is the catalyst and it's vitally important to uh, get the timing right and we don't want to just hold and hope something goes up. We want to actually identify why something might go up. And then finally, as part of our process, we try and identify why we're different from the market. We want to be a little bit contrarian and we want, to be avoid, we want to avoid getting stuck in consensus trades. How, how do you think about your shorts and portfolio management more broadly? Are, are the shorts there to make absolute return or are this more of a pairs theme or do you, do you expect most of your return to come from shorts? Can you just talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and there's obviously some shorts that will go down regardless of what happens. You know, that's the frauds and things like that. But then there's other shorts that, you know, will go down and, you know, we don't always know what the market's going to do. So our short, short book has a large element of insurance about it. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 days. We don't know what Trump's going to tweet tonight. And so what we try and do is identify long positions that will outperform the stock market 
and we try and identify short positions that will underperform and underperform the market whether it goes up or down. And that way we don't have to worry about what the market's going to do. We can just focus on picking stocks. And that way, you know, because we've always got that market neutral portfolio in our market neutral strategy, um, we can just benefit, you know, we can provide returns to investors through stock picking and not through worrying about what the US market or, or the Asian markets are gonna do. I don't think anyone can blame you for not knowing what Donald Trump's about to tweet. <laughs> I'm not sure he knows what he's about to tweet. No, exactly. Can you talk a, a little bit about the evolution of your process and your team? I, I think you've built the team up considerably o over the years and the 15 years um, to probably about 50 odd heads between here and Singapore. Can you talk to us how that has changed and evolved over that time? Yeah, that's right. We've got close to 50 people around, I think, 12 or 15 in Singapore and the balance in our Sydney office. Um, and even though we've been going for 15 years, it feels very much like a, a startup still. And it's only now that I feel like the team is complete. And I say that because, you know, I'm very, very focused on getting the best sector specialists that we can. And so, you know, as I said earlier, you know, have medical doctors focused on the healthcare sector is, is very good because, especially in Australia, there's a lot of generalists trying to um, invest in the healthcare sector. And sectors like healthcare, technology, mining, energy, these are sectors where you need deep sector specialists. And so that's one thing I've learned over 15 years. There's benefits to being a generalist, which is what I call myself, but there's also benefits from having that deep sector knowledge. Um, and so I think we combine that well. So the execution team and myself, we can utilise our experience, we can utilise our relationships to get the timing right, to work out where the risks are, but then we can rely heavily on our research team for the valuation. And how has that team uh, changed over time? Has there been less, less reliance on sell-side research? And if so, what, what are the drivers for that? Yeah, that's probably one of the big trends that I've seen over the last 20 or 30 years. When I worked on the, the sell side um, in the 90s, the world was very, very different. Um, but just like the uh, internet has destroyed the newspaper classifieds, I think electronic execution is having a huge impact on the brokers. And it's putting a lot of pressure on their margins. Um, and as a result, a lot of brokers are cutting back on their research teams. Um, and that's making a big challenge for a lot of sell-side research teams to remain relevant. And in addition to that, I think electronic dissemination of information has meant it, you know, in some ways leveled the playing field. Um, and in, in addition to that, you've had regulatory changes such as MIFID II in Europe, which has separated what clients pay for research to what they pay for execution. And that perhaps has exposed, you know, made some clients think they're paying too much for research. Um, and so, you know, one of the big trends I think we've seen is just the pressure on the sell side. And I think, you know, there's, there's two ways uh, buy side firms like Regal can respond. We can kind of try and compete um, at the low cost end of the market. And there's a lot of inflows into the passive funds at the moment. Mm -hmm. But what we've chosen to do is very much try and differentiate ourselves by the quality of our returns. And so we very much have invested in our team and we're probably doing more of our own proprietary research than we've ever done before. And as part of that, we're using independent experts 
and we've invested in our own team and that's why we've got a headcount that's close to 50. I think I've heard you say one of the things you're trying to, and use the analogy of European football versus Australian football in that in, in Australia, Sydney FC and all of these groups are constrained by salary caps and so forth to try and make the comp even. In Europe, you've got your Barcelonas uh, and, and your Liverpools who are uncapped and you get these dynasties where success breeds success and they've got an unassailable bank account or strength where they can keep doing that. You're trying to create the same thing here at Regal by hiring and keeping the best. How do you go about keeping the best? Especially, let me, let me maybe frame it, I can recall a period about three and a half years ago, maybe two and a half, where I had only just joined Coda and we'd had the small caps fund in the portfolio and I sat down with one of my good clients, we just put it into the portfolio and we were around the kitchen table and I was having, the, having, having it beaten into me that 21.5% loss was unacceptable and why am I keeping this in the portfolio right at that point in time. So how do you keep a team focused, incentivized and engaged when I, when I guess that many of them are on performance basis within the group or, or you are as well as a whole group, how do you keep them engaged when things are tough? Yes, like many successful businesses or, or sporting clubs, you've got to kind of build that franchise. And so, you know, I think we have been quite successful in building a franchise in Australia where people are ringing us now, they want to come and play or work for us. Um, and so I think we have a good reputation now where we can select the best best people in the, in the industry, whereas 15 years ago when we set up, you know, it was a very much a question of who are you and why would I want to work for you? And now we've got people knocking on our door. And when you choose the right people, and I think part of my skill is not only picking stocks, but picking people as well, um, you've got to hang on to them. And, you know, it's, it's like any sort of relationship. You've got to treat people well. Um, you've got to kind of ask them what's important for them. You've got to give them responsibility. You've got to give them a career path. But you've also got to pay them well. And we certainly pay our staff well. Um, but where we probably differentiate ourselves a little bit from maybe some of the hedge funds based in, in Asia is that we very much encourage teamwork and we want to work together as a team and I think a, a strong team will always beat a, a bunch of individuals and that's really how we want to um, pitch ourselves and so um, yeah I think it's, it, it's a combination of paying people well but also just treating people well. And what are the key traits of the people that you're looking for when you say you're a, a good judge and a good selector? What, what are the key attributes you see in those people that uh, you think fit in well to your team? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, you know, we'd like to have diversity in our team. So there's no kind of formula. Um, and, and we've got people coming through, you know, different avenues in life. Um, but we're looking for, firstly, I think, good people, people that get on with other people, people that are team players, and um, that's very, very important to us. You know, um, intelligence is, good, is very important. We uh, get all our potential employees to undergo psychometric testing. Um, but also there's those things that you can't always measure, you know, that, that questioning cynical attitude, I think it's always very, very good for an investor. Um, and just that, that yearning to, to question things and ask why and, and you know, and, and can I believe you? Because 
working out who's telling the truth in investment is always very important. After 15 years in the business, what does your day look like? You're a big team, it's been very successful, you've got huge funds under management. I was interested to note when I walked in here um, and, and noticed very much on the tools with headset on and screens in front of you, which looks like you're right on the tools, but talk us through a rough day of yours, what it looks like. Look, I always try and get in front of the screens a bit. Um, you've got to have your finger on the pulse just to know what's going on. But on the other hand, I think it's very important to have time away from the screens. And, you know, I find myself sometimes telling my boys to get off their Xboxes and iPads. And I think um, too much screen time, you know, can become addictive. Um, and I think I sometimes have my best ideas when I'm away from the screens. And so, look, I'm probably meeting two or three corporates every day. I'm talking to a lot of brokers. Um, and I, I'm um, trying to talk to as many people as I can as well as internal meetings with, with various members of my team. And, you know, we have a very open plan office. There's, there's always, you know, people chatting to each other informally. But I think it's very important to have regular meetings as well, just to in introduce that discipline. And so we have regular meetings throughout the week. Um, so every day is different, but it's, you know, like many people, it's a combination of, of meetings. But I do try and keep a bit of time free in my day just to, you know, get in front of the screens and see what's going on. And from a portfolio management perspective, I, I believe I've heard you say something similar to every day we rebuy our portfolio. Not that you physically go into the market and rebuy it and have churn, but you have to satisfy yourself of everything based on its metrics at that day. Can you talk to us about that discipline? Of course, it must be tough when you have large winners that have gone up many fold to be able to hold that position or otherwise. Yeah, it's just a philosophy that we have. Um, you know, on one hand, there's always investors coming in every month to our funds, and so they're effectively buying the portfolio at the, the closing price or the opening price for that month. And so you've got a responsibility to new investors that you're comfortable with the portfolio. But I think it's a, a good philosophy. Um, our execution costs uh, are very, very low. So, you know, we can get in and out of things quite easily. Um, but it's just a philosophy, I think. If you're not happy to own it, um, I think, you know, if you're not happy to buy it, you shouldn't own it. And so if you start to worry about something, if you think something might look expensive, um, then you probably should sell it. And it reminds me of a saying I told my wife many, many years ago before I actually started Regal. I said, you know, if I ever come home worried about something, just remind me, just tell me, if in doubt, ship it out. And I think, you know, if, you, if you're worried about something, it's probably best to move on because unless it's high conviction, we don't want to own it. That's a good philosophy. Can you talk a little bit about uh, ETFs? And obviously you're very active and a, a strong proponent of active management that has worked fabulously well, uh, a great example of it. But can you talk a little bit about the passive money in the market at the moment and what sort of, uh, what, what, what's the corollary of that? What sort of opportunities that may be, may be presenting for people like yourselves? Yeah, I saw something on Bloomberg recently where the amount of money in passive funds has got larger than the active funds for the first time ever. And that's an interesting trend. And I think it's creating great opportunities for active managers like Regal um, because you know, we know when those passive funds have to buy something, they buy it when it joins the index, and we know when they have to sell, and they sell when it leaves the index, and that creates opportunities. And I think there's probably 
um, stocks in Australia, we think, uh, you know, uh, when they join the index, that's having a bigger impact than ever before. Um, and so I think there is a bit of a trend, a bit of a bubble developing in a lot of stocks as a result of the inflows into passive funds. A lot of stocks in Australia are kind of roughly one third owned by founders, one third owned by the, the growth managers, and then one third are perhaps owned by index funds and quant managers. And so when those index funds and quant managers buy that third, there, there's really no one left to sell. And so stocks can keep trending up for an extended period of time. And I think there are some stocks in Australia that are quite expensive as a result of the, the passive flows. Um, and so, you know, some people say, is active management dead? And I say, no, but all forms of investment go through cycles. And at the moment, you know, active management, active managers are finding it a bit tough. Um, but I think this will be cyclical. And I think at some stage, the money will start to flow out of the passive funds and then active management will come back to the fore and that will provide great opportunities for, for active managers like Regal, but especially active managers who can short. Now talking about the cycle, where do you think we are from an attractiveness of an entry point and a, an attractiveness of deploying capital right at the moment? Of course, there's a lot of people talking about late stage and record valuations, uh, etc. I think your view might be a little contrary. Yeah, look, there are people talking about the US being late stage because they haven't had a recession for 14 years or something. Those people obviously have never come to Australia because I don't think we've had a recession for 28 years. So to say the US is late stage is just because they haven't had a recession for 14 years, I think is a little bit naive. Um, so look, one thing that I'm very glad about is that we don't have to predict the macro. And so I think it's, it's very brave if you start betting on whether the US is going to enter a recession or not. If there is a recession, I don't think it'll be too bad. Um, and I think a lot of our portfolio will do well, regardless of whether economic growth is negative or positive. Um, and so we don't mind the equity market at the moment. I think the big um, change in, in markets over the last year or two has been the collapse in bond yields. Bonds have rallied hard, and I think that makes equities cheap in comparison. And on our numbers, equities have only been this cheap relative to bonds in the two previous crises, the Greek crisis and then the financial crisis. And so we think equities are very cheap relative to bonds. We think, some people think that's not important. We do think it's important. Um, it just creates opportunities that will mean that some investors will switch from bonds to equities, but it also means great opportunities for, for corporates as well. And I think, um, you know, Australian corporates are borrowing money cheaper than they've ever borrowed it before. I think there was two deals announced last week, Katmandu and C-Link, and both those stocks rallied very, very hard because there was huge earnings accretion that came partly through re-leveraging the balance sheet. Now, I think that's a great opportunity for corporates at the moment is to use this cheap debt to buy stocks uh, at good prices. 
Now let's get into the weeds a little bit if we could. There's been a few sort of specific stocks that you've done very well at and um, you know, some of those technology ones like WiseTech, Appen and Afterpay, are they still things that you particularly like or uh, do you think some of those have started to run their course on a valuation basis? Look, they're all great companies. We like WiseTech, we like Appen, we like Afterpay. They've all done very, very well and I think they've all got a great future. Uh, we've sold our positions in Afterpay and WiseTech because the, we thought the valuation got a bit expensive, but we still own Appen because we think the valuation's very attractive. Um, and that's not on today's PE, that's on future cash flows two or three years out. Yeah, we're looking forward a few years and I think, um, you know, that's fine. If, if a company has got a very strong market position, I, I feel comfortable looking forward a few years to see where that stock will be in a couple of years. Um, and there's other stocks out there. I think one reason that we've been very successful this year is that we've focused very heavily on small growth stocks. And we're very much in a low interest rate, low growth environment. And so if we can identify earnings growth, organic earnings growth, uh, before the market discovers it, then not only will we benefit from that EPS growth, but we'll get a strong re-rating in that stock as well. And we've had a number of stocks double or triple this year as the market discovers the EPS growth and re-rates them. And, um, you know, I think a lot of stocks, um, as I said earlier, you know, will go up heavily as they enter the index as well. And so, yeah, that's something we're very focused on stocks before they get too big or big enough to enter the index. How do you get yourself comfortable with the cash flows in two to three years time on something like Appen or some of these small company stocks. Take Appen for instance, that's operating in the sort of machine learning and data provision for that. Um, given the uncertainties in that industry, how do you guys get comfortable two to three years out that what we think the, the cash flow is roughly going to be? Well, investment is all about making forecasts and you know, making forecasts um, always involves a little bit of uncertainty, but I feel a lot more confident forecasting Appen's future cash flows than many cyclical stocks in Australia. And I think stocks that rely on the economy for earnings growth um, can disappoint. And that's, I think there's probably been more value traps in Australia over the last six months than I've, I've seen in a long time. Whereas something like Appen, if we you know, do the research, explore the competitive landscape, if we talk to suppliers, if we talk to customers, we talk to management, we get very, very comfortable. They're in a very strong spot and their growth is almost accelerating at the moment. Uh, they've established themselves as the go-to for their customers and the, the main criticism they used to got, get was that they were too reliant on one or two customers, but they've very much diversified their customer base They've, um, a few years ago, they took out one of their large competitors. And I think they've very much established themselves as the go-to for, for their machine learning and their specialty as, as well as speech recognition. I think I've heard you talk about wanting to invest in global leaders in what they do. Um, you've invested in Afterpay. I think you may have invested in Zip, I'm not sure. Yeah, we've still got a very big position yes. in Zip. And, and, and why are you comfortable with Zip as opposed to Afterpay when they're both in the buy now, pay later market? Yeah, when we bought Zip, it was on a valuation that was about 10% the size of Afterpay. And as I said, the first step in our process is valuation. And so we just thought all the hype was on Afterpay 
and we thought people hadn't really discovered ZIP. And so, um, yeah, we made a large investment in ZIP um, and that's been very, very su successful for us. And that stock, I think, is up two or three times since we invested. Um, you know, we think in the buy now, pay later space, there'll probably be two or three kind of winners. Uh, I think the, the merchants have an incentive to have more than just afterpay on offer. And just like you know, most merchants accept two or three different credit cards, I think most merchants will accept two or three different buy now, pay later um, providers. And so we think afterpay and zip will be you know, certainly the, the two winners. Um, and we just prefer zip on the valuation. And what do they have that stops them or stops someone like a visa who I think may have just launched their own buy now, pay later solution just sort of rolling through? Do they have anything proprietary in your mind or defensible? Do they have a big enough moat? Yeah, look, it is competitive and there's no doubt about that. Um, and so, you know, we, we think it will get competitive and certainly kind of the, the fees that firms like Afterpay have been charging the merchants have come down a long way since they first started. And that's a function of competition. But what Afterpay and Zip can offer the merchants is that they have huge customer bases. And so at the end of the day, you know, merchants want customers and that's what Afterpay and Zip offer them. And what Afterpay and Zip offer their customers is they can offer you know, many different places to shop. Um, so, you know, I think the merchants at the end of the day will offer different ways to pay for things and I think Zip and Afterpay, because they have these large customer bases, will be winners in the area. Phil, thank you very much for your time joining me inside the rope and once again, thanks for re-recording it. If there's anything else you want to add to our listeners or our clients, please do so. We'd be happy for you to, to add that in. Uh, if not, thank you very much for, for joining us inside the rope. No, thanks, David. I always enjoy chatting to you. So good luck with everything at Coda and uh, let's catch up again soon. Terrific. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.